It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. And with that, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a villa of vivacity in a violent world. I'm Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, founder of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Nurse Amy. I'm also Amy Alton. I am a certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Now we have active medical licenses and we can spout the conventional medical wisdom, even the unconventional type of wisdom, probably more often than the conventional, which is what it may take to be medically self-reliant. But before we start, you better listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a word we say, but if you do, you might wind up medically prepared. And I'll tell you, these days, it's not a bad idea. Hey, you know, in the news, COVID-19 cases are again on the rise as if second wave of infections coincide with the reopening of many businesses throughout the United States. It's like a one-two punch. It really is. And we are beginning to experience the effects of that in a lot of different cities. Now, perhaps the first thing I think I should mention is that a second wave occurring as society reopened was inevitable. And anticipated expected absolutely that's right regardless of the timing of any measures that might have been taken pandemics commonly have a pattern just like this health officials and political policy can do very little to stop it they may do their best to lessen its effect or perhaps to delay it somewhat but a second wave is inevitable and we may we may be beginning to see signs of that now if we take previous pandemics like the spanish flu of a century ago you'll see that there were not two, but three waves, one in each uh, one each in spring and fall of 1918, and then again in winter of 1918, 1919. And each of those waves claimed their share of victims, and the second wave actually was more deadly than the first. Than the first. That's crazy. Now, if you live in a less than urban setting the second wave actually may be the first wave for you right because it hadn't made it out to you yet that's right that as, makes sense and as people would get out and about places that were in hot spots will be as maybe they visit places like gatlinburg tennessee or they visit uh, branson missouri or you know some some place like that people right. get out into the country that were in places like new york city well sure enough they're going to be a first there's going to be a first wave there while there are second waves in the bigger cities that is no big surprise as far as i'm concerned because areas where there were lots of cases you know even if they're not hit as much well you know antibodies produced against the virus might be strong enough to provide immunity so it doesn't look so bad but the first wave my fingers are crossed right, honey. <laughs> that's right. the first wave in a lot of smaller towns i think you're you're going to wind up seeing soon it's none of this is automatic uh, uh i'll have to say that even immunity, 
even if you have had COVID-19, is not automatic. It's not like chickenpox where you get long-term immunity. The same can't be said for things like influenza and indeed COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, you have to produce antibodies, and, and I think everybody does once they get any of these, but how long those antibodies last, how strong those antibodies are, well, that really honestly varies from infection uh, disease to disease, from virus to virus. And the jury's still out. That's We're right. not sure. We haven't been able to do enough antibody testing for known people who have had it. And we haven't been able to do a lot of antibody testing for people that were not sure if they had it. That's right. We need to follow these people, especially the ones that they knew had an infection. They have hospital records of how how sick they were, how long they had it, uh, details like that. And then when they follow with these antibody tests, they can determine after a few years, mm-hmm. not immediately, who's going to have the antibodies that last the longest if you're very sick, does that mean you have longer immunity? If you didn't even know you were sick, do you have a short antibody lasting? So um, these are all up in the air. That's we're not, a good point. We're not going to know this for a long time. Uh, we can cross our fingers and and hope that we have very, very long immunity with a known or an unknown infection, which means we'll get herd immunity right. eventually. I think you have to hit 60 or 70% of the population to actually get herd immunity. But, you know, we, there's just unknowns right now. And so you cannot say for sure, if you've had it, that you will never get it again. We don't know yet. That's very true. Uh, let's talk a little bit about immunity. A, a particular individual, or sometimes an entire species, mm-hmm. might possess a natural ability to resist a pathogen due to some genetic memory that was passed on from generation to generation. And some people term this natural immunity. Uh, I would say that someone who didn't have natural immunity to a particular virus, let's take smallpox as Mm -hmm. an example, was the Native American population of the New World. Right. Now, the first European explorers, they had generation upon generation upon generation of people that were exposed to smallpox. But that couldn't be said for the Native Americans that they encountered when they first began to colonize the new world and as a result probably 90 percent of the native population of some areas of the north american east coast just died disappeared they got sick that's right right. these same explorers didn't get sick or at least more of them survive let's put it this way even if they did get smallpox Mm -hmm. because of a, a natural immunity given by centuries of this previous exposure now then there's acquired immunity now immunity may be acquired passively over time uh or it could be as a result of being exposed to a disease like chickenpox. And so if you naturally were exposed to chickenpox, indeed, you will have this sort of passive immunity that occurs as a result. Now, many public health departments try to give you this kind of immunity actively by immunizing you. And vaccinations, for example, against influenza are usually made available to people in developed countries in advance of these seasonal outbreaks in the hopes of decreasing the number of people that wind up getting sick. So that immunity is acquired artificially and actively given by, you know, the public health department or your pharmacy Mm -hmm. or your doctor, uh, as opposed to being passively acquired by simply being exposed to the disease itself and getting through it and having the antibodies. With influenza, 
These, I think, are most effective, these vi uh, vaccines, if the virus is similar to last year's strain. That's something called antigenic drift, uh, just slightly different. If they use material from last year's virus to produce a vaccine, it works better if this year's virus isn't much different. But if the virus has mutated significantly, something called antigenic shift, which is coincidentally the title of a book by our friend Terry Blackmore we had last, uh, last week, yep. the vaccine may not be as effective. In some recent years, flu vaccines have been as low as 19% only effective in preventing the illness. If the virus doesn't mutate a great deal, however, like smallpox, you could actually eradicate a disease if you can make the antibodies last long enough. Now, this is not to say there might not be side effects or complications with vaccines. There certainly can be. That's Just, not the point of this conversation. You are explaining what immunity is that's right and just, the different ways to get it exactly just that the benefits might outweigh the risks in certain cases now then of course there's herd immunity you mentioned that mm -hmm. and basically if you drop someone who has not had a certain disease in the midst of a bunch of people that have been vaccinated against the disease or who have had it right let's say let's call it chicken pox let's okay. call it a classroom of kids uh -huh. and a certain percentage has had chicken pox already right. They had it. It was awful. I don't know if everybody out there has had it, probably. I had it. I had it when I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah. It was really bad for they me. They didn't come out with the vaccine until my second child was, I think, about two. So I'm thinking it was 1995 when they came out with it. Uh -huh. But she was the first child in South Florida to get it. I made sure. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I knew that she had had exposure and I did not want her to get it. Her, my other daughter had a very bad case of it. And I thought, well, we've got the vaccine, and let's see if it works. She got the vaccine. And she never like the got the day before box. they were supposed to start giving it out. I called an office. They had it. I said, I'll give you cash. Will you please give my daughter the chicken box vaccine? So it worked. And they said, yes. Mm hmm. And they asked me, has she had exposure? And I said, no, no, absolutely not. No, but she did. I knew darn well she had been very close to someone who was actively it's interesting had that it that, the next day. Interesting that it worked that quickly. <laughs> it did. She it prevented her from getting it, and I know she mm -hmm. would have gotten right. it. Now, but course, anyway, so let's call the classroom people who have had chicken pox. All right, so you have basically a number of people who have We'll been, call it 100 kids. Let's have 100 kids, and 90 of them have been vaccinated against chicken pox. Or they've had chicken pox. Or have had chicken pox. Right. Now, these people all have antibodies against chicken pox, and if you put one child that has not been vaccinated in the midst of these 100 or 90 other people, that kids who have had chicken pox... Right. Or had the vaccination, mm -hmm. the likelihood of being exposed to someone that has active chickenpox is very, very small. Right. And so you're protected by 10, the herd. Because there's only 10 other kids that haven't. Exactly. Have not had have it. Have not had it. Right. right. And so when they, those kids have it, let's say one of those kids have it, they can only spread it to another nine individuals in that hundred. Right. And, and hopefully so, they're not playing in the same area or the same group, tossing the ball with just the other ones that haven't had it <laughs> right right because we've got to dilute those yes. amongst everybody and hopefully those kids are playing with a bunch of other children that have already had chicken box exactly so that's herd immunity uh, now one thing i want to say is that i'm i'm seeing people being not only surprised by second waves of covid19 but considering some kind of it's some kind of failure on the part of uh, uh, national health officials or or the government and they shouldn't be. Most health officials have long stated there were going to be more cases of this. They expected a second wave. And 
I think what's happening is one the this dismay on the part of American citizens as a result of new new cases coming up. Mm-hmm. Maybe what I call COVID fatigue. So people are having COVID fatigue. You can have war fatigue. You can have. I think that's an excellent chronic did you write fatigue. An, did you write an article on COVID fatigue? I did. Fatigue? I did actually. Did, I did you title it COVID fatigue? Yep. Yep. I, I don't know if anybody else is using that term, but uh, that's that's what I call it. Because the public is getting really Makes weary. Perfect sense of social distancing. Oh They're getting gosh. weary of wearing a face covering everywhere. Oh, and down here in South Florida, it's wait, ninety-five degrees, and not being able to have somebody with you at a doctor's appointment—that is so annoying. Right, right. That's exactly right. You and I'm I. delaying having a test done because I absolutely want you with me. I'm just not going to do it until they let the, let you be with me. All right, well, not going to do it. Okay, well. <laughs> And that's terrible, delaying health care because I can't have a visitor. I mean, whatever. And a lot of our... We need to stop it at the hospital. A lot of the tests that we need to have done are actually not being able to be be done. You know, we're all wearing masks. What's going to happen if someone has a visitor with them? The visitor's wearing a mask. The patient's wearing a mask. The doctor's wearing a mask. The nurses are wearing masks. Like, what's the harm? Let people have visitors at the hospital. That is one thing that I'm like outraged about. The fact that there were people who were delivering babies during this time whose husbands couldn't be with them. I mean, I'm sure most hospitals were letting, but there were some very rigid hospitals that weren't letting that happen. Surgeries were done. People's lives were on the line. People were having cancer treatments. There are people who died of, of terrible things and not even including COVID, but other things killed people during this time. And they weren't allowed to have visitors what i'm sorry they went way overboard with that well that's true but because we are still doing these kinds of uh, personal protection measures you know making people don personal protection equipment uh, making them stay home in some in some situations avoid avoiding restaurants movie theaters malls the other you know staples of normal american society well, people are getting weary of it. The COVID fatigue. That's mm. that's what I call yeah, it. Yeah, do you hear my voice? Well, I'm just annoyed about that whole thing with the hospitals. Well, there you go. Not allowing visitors. When somebody's sick in the hospital, they need to have their loved one with, with them. You have written many articles about having, you know, a medical representative with you. Right, patient To advocate. watch out, pay the patient advocate to watch out, to make sure everything's being done right and that, Nobody's ignoring this person That's true. or when my, doing the wrong thing. Well, my severely diabetic son had a, a kidney uh, operation, had a kidney transplant. You and I actually were the first people to notice that he was having bleeding some internal to death. bleeding. Exactly. Yeah, internal bleeding. In front of our eyes. We had to actually convince oh. the people over there oh. that this was an active bleed. Sure enough, it was. And he had to be taken back to surgery. If we weren't there, no, if, he, that, was if the that had clo- happened now, yes, he would have died. I agree, because they wouldn't have let us come in. That was the closest I've come to actually hurting someone in a hospital. That was The woman just looked at us like we were crazy. And she's like, if you don't empty the drain, then he's not bleeding. Right. Do you yeah. remember? And I looked at her and I said, you can't actually be a registered nurse. I just wanted to choke her at that moment because I have somebody who's, we have somebody who's bleeding to death in front of our eyes 
in active bleeding, bright red blood coming into the drain. And she's standing there telling us if you don't empty the drain, that means that they're not bleeding, which means she never empties the drain. And God knows how many people she's actually murdered. Because that's murder. <laughs> I'm it's sorry. It's crazy. Well, well, but anyway, you need patient advocates and people should be allowed to be with their loved ones in these hospitals. I understand one person at a time. I get it. They don't want to overwhelm the hospital, but everyone's wearing masks anyway. Everyone's washing their hands, using hand sanitizer. Please, hospitals, let the visitors be with their loved ones. Let's, that's right. Let's be done with this. So, anyhow, you can see that she's pretty sick and tired of, I'm very... of all this. And let's face it, I mean, the new normal, whatever it's going to be, I'm, it's going to compare poorly to the good old days. Good old days of five months ago. Well. Oh, well, wait, I want to say one more thing about COVID fatigue. Another thing, folks, this BS of having to wear your mask outside, don't believe it. I want to hear one case of an outside transmission of COVID to someone else. It's not happening. Unless you're in these riots or in these protests or in some party where everyone is literally 12 inches away from each other, I could maybe understand. But you have to understand, viruses don't fly. They don't have wings. They're not like mosquitoes that are going to flap their wings and fly into fly your up face. Your nose. They're, well, but the they're particles that when... They get outside, they're drifting out into the, the air, drifting away or falling to the ground. Well, I just want to say that the CDC itself is saying that you should wear outside in public, you should wear masks if you can't social distance. If you are social distanced, six feet or more away from people, uh, the next person, right. then you really don't have to wear that mask. That's what Dr. Burks, B-I-R-X, uh, right. the, the lady doctor who's been on the task force, has been trying to emphasize that, you know, if the mask wearing in outside is so, for people who can't social distance. So if you are going to be organizing the next mass protest, then you probably have to wear your mask. Right, because these people are 12 inches away from each other. But if you're hiking... They're all crowded up. But, but if, if you're walking on the sidewalk, you're hiking riding... the Appalachian Trail. Riding a bike, you're walking from your car to into the grocery store, and then as soon as you get out of the store, you can take your mask off. You don't need to wear it outside. If you're dining outside at a table, and those tables aren't right up next to each other... You don't have to wear a mask. We're over-masking now. We're under-masking, and now we're over-masking. So there you have it. You have the COVID fatigue. Then you have the, uh, even for those people who have adjusted to these pandemic prevention guidelines, you know, all the, the current headlines have sparked all these nationwide mass protests spilling over internationally, amazingly. And uh, in, in terms of it's something happening in the United States, not necessarily in Denmark or stuff like that so as you can imagine large demonstrations as you mentioned don't follow the rules of social distancing that's going to hamper right. the efforts to stop the spread of the virus so i, I expect a second wave is bad or, or worse than the first one if we continue to have all of these mass crowded encounters right so covid fatigue mass protests one two punch here but public policy is a big issue as well. If you reopen too quickly, it may cause a large number of new cases by just by doing that.
But the thing is, you can't stay in semi-permanent lockdown. That's going to throw the nation into a major economic depression, even worse than it is. And the balance is so delicate that a perfect solution is just almost impossible to achieve. I mean, really, every option is fraught with risk. For the people that are in charge, There, it's a no-win, I think. It's very, very difficult to to be able to avoid having more cases in situations where you need to have a functioning economy. You know, if you have people that are just staying home, there's not a, there's not a functioning economy and eventually we're going to go into some long-term economic collapse. So all of this stuff makes it more likely that a second wave is going to be significant, but we just don't know how significant Will we see a ripple in the pond? Will it be a massive tidal wave? Will it be somewhere in the middle? Probably, Probably like what in, we saw. I think it's going to be the in the middle wave. because at this point, again, people are more accepting of wearing masks. Right. At least indoors. I know a lot of people don't think of wearing a mask at all outside. But again, if you can't socially distance and you're right up against a group of people, you probably should have a mask on even if you're outside. But indoors, we should be wearing them. And I think most people are, at least down here in South Florida. So when you go into a grocery store, I saw one guy, I've seen literally one guy since they instituted, you know, wearing masks in Broward County and Dade County. One person, um, an insect repellent company, uh, bug company, I know this because I saw him walk out to his, his truck. But he was in the grocery store loudly being nice to everybody without a mask. And I think that was his way of disarming people who probably wanted to say, Hey, dude, why don't you have your mask on? Everyone else does. And there's a sign on the front door that says you should be wearing it. And there was a police by the front door, too. So he just walked right by him. I'm, you know, he, he was doing an F you, really. But to anyway, society. only one person I've seen without a mask inside so far. The problem is the restaurants. Right. I Big portion have of eaten the in one restaurant since February, and that was with my daughter mm-hmm. last week. And they thankfully had all the tables six feet or further away from each other. But you would walk in with a mask and sit down, and the second you sit down, you take it off. As you, you have water in front of you, you've got bread in front of you, then your meal comes, then you're going to get coffee, maybe a dessert. I mean, there's, a, there's no time that you're thinking, oh, I'm going to put my mask back on. So I was actually in a restaurant, but we were more than six to eight feet away from any other human being. And uh, it was my first time without a mask inside of a building. It was really weird, I have to say. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It was you spend strange. Your, you spent your entire life, my whole not life wearing a mask. Not even thinking about putting a mask Except on. Except when you're at work. Right? Yeah, right. Unless I was delivering a baby or doing right. some procedure. But, yeah, it was weird. It was really it's, weird. It was uncomfortable. At one point, I had anxiety. Because I was watching everything that everyone touched. Right. What they were wiping down, their procedures. I had my eyes on everyone in that restaurant. And people who were wearing gloves and who wasn't when they took them off. What did they touch between wearing them and taking them off? And I actually had a conversation with the manager of the restaurant. Because they leave cups on the table up, right? Not turned over, but up 
so the open parts up they leave the napkins and the silverware in a cup in the middle of the table so when you get there your cup could have been coughed on your silverware could have been coughed on and your napkins could have been coughed on so I said you know you really need to move all of this to the back of the kitchen when someone sits down you bring the napkins out you bring the silverware out and you bring the cups if you leave these on the table I don't know who was just here someone sure. could have just coughed in my cup you replace the one that they used but mine was still sitting here you know depending on where they sat at the table upright ready for things to just fall into it I said you need to do this well the health department was here and this is what they told us to do he says they told us to turn the cups upright instead of upside down I said so they were worried about the COVID on the table but not the COVID floating in the air into the cup uh -huh, I said does that make sense yes. to you he goes no not really I said listen health department's great they're not perfect you should move all this stuff to the back you could do one better than what the health department told you because I know looking in your eyes that you've got common sense and that you know what I'm telling you is the right thing to do. True. <laughs> I had a way about me to convince him. <laughs> well, the important thing is that the recipe for personal safety doesn't change even as society opens up. So you have to be careful. Yep. Now, you don't have to be necessarily pessimistic about it. And, you know, we've learned a lot about SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind the COVID-19 mm -hmm. pandemic. I mean, we don't know everything about it, but we do know more. Uh, we've come to realize the importance of mass testing. We've come to keep close track, the importance at least, know the importance of keeping close track of contacts. And it's, it's all common sense. So with a contagious disease, we have to know who's capable of spreading it. And with workplaces beginning to reopen, this kind of information becomes pretty, pretty essential. Mm -hmm. Now, we have also realized the importance of having personal protection items in our medical medicine well, our medical kit or medicine cabinets surgical masks and 95 masks right. there you hear that they're considered to be for medical workers only and that leaves the average citizen with a limited array of less effective face coverings now health officials endorse these cloth coverings but not because they're great but only because of the lack of supplies but you have to remember many folks end up becoming medical workers quote unquote when somebody in a family comes down with a mild to moderate case of this COVID-19. So I think I can make a safe prediction that there are going to be a lot more people accumulating masks or have, at least having a few in their medicine kit or their survival medicine cabinet, as I call it. More face masks to go around, I think, in future outbreaks. And, and I'm hoping that more of these are going to be made in the USA. I am seeing oh, I a number so. of people that uh, are advertising face masks now so there there are things that you can get they're still from china and they're they're all they're still, still from, china. from china yes well geez louise well so, you and i need to if you if you have a mask machine machine and guess where all the machines come from um, yeah china, china. <laughs> if you have a face you think mask they're gonna machine, sell us, us a, a face mask machine we're gonna we're gonna have to first have a company here in america that actually builds the mask machines then, then we all have to buy the mass machines from the American company. <laughs> I know, I know. And then someone else is going to have to do all the um, okay. materials. Right. Somebody someone has else to has got to do us. the materials. And somebody has to train us on how oh. to use these things. Wow. Well, a lot of unknowns still out there. Even though, even though we know more about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, there's still a lot of uh, unknowns. Um, opening schools, opening colleges, that's going to 
be something that's going to be another avenue for a second wave of COVID-19. Yes. Uh, my other daughter who is still in Brooklyn is starting her master's degree. Oh, and yes. yeah, you know, Stephanie, this. Sure. Yep. in the end of August and they just sent out, remember I told you a questionnaire, uh-huh. three options, one online, mm-hmm. two, a hybrid class or three all in person. So they're actually asking the students what they prefer. Now, of course, she did online because she needs to work I while think she's doing this. These days, I think everybody. Well, would the thing pick is, that. I think this school has a lot of international students, so those people may want to move to New York City just for the experience. I don't know. Ah. You would think that they not want to be in your city. Do that. That's the most expensive place. Oh my gosh! I know. But anyhow, this university is disgustingly expensive. But that's a big issue. I mean, schools and universities opening up Uh, now. The good thing, and I really want people to understand this: that the risk to children of COVID nineteen is not so severe. There have been about twenty U.S. deaths of kids fourteen and under. And that's of two million out of two out of one hundred seventeen thousand deaths, but two million cases of COVID nineteen, and probably ten times as many really actual cases mm-hmm. out there that we just don't know about. And there are twenty kids that actually have died. And in terms of college students and high school students, there have been about one hundred twenty in the fifteen to twenty four year year of age group. Right, and that's twenty. And one, 20 and 14 and under, 120 and uh, 14 to 20, 15 to 24. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're 24 and under, your chances of dying were pretty much very, very tiny, rare, tiny, tiny, tiny. 140 rare. total deaths in people under 24 out of 117,000 U.S. deaths and 2 million, probably 20 million, really, cases. Right. So it's, I mean, it's important that we still have these kids use some precautions because you know children and young adults can may infect older relatives but right they're not careful the problem with them is that asymptomatic infections bring it home to the older relatives who then spread even if their older relatives are just their parents they're in their 30s or 40s or 20s maybe and then that generation may be spreading it to their co-workers that then go and spread it to an older mom who then spreads it to an older grandmother. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's just the the host. Exactly. You, you can be young and be a host and have an asymptomatic infection that winds up eventually killing someone else down the, the line because you were just a host for that virus for a short period of time. Enough, carrier, long enough, a so carrier to, to give it to somebody else who may not even have known they had it either. And then... That virus that was in your body ends up killing someone down the road. That's really sad. Well, hopefully, if we can keep a combination of continued social distancing, some face coverings, uh, continued research, that's going to maybe prevent a major second wave. But I think this is absolutely unrealistic, at least in the short term. So the question is, what can we do to really prevent a total shutdown and economic ruin of the United States? I know. Personal responsibility. Which means determining your risk factors, like we just talked about, depending on your age, where you go to for school or socializing or work. You determine your risk, determine the protection that you need to have 
to protect yourself and to protect others and we all need to do it and to make sure we're washing our hands using the hand sanitizer wearing the masks in certain situations we just need to take it upon ourselves to make sure we don't become the next host for this you know what virus that's how i feel about that virus <laughs> the you know what virus yes <laughs> Well, what about this? You know, the disease is most more severe in 65 and older. That's pretty established, right? Or if, mm-hmm. or if you have really bad underlying health conditions. Right. Now, what about restrictions if we design them by age? We could probably reopen most of society and probably save the economy. Now, think about it. Those over 65, maybe they comprise 12% of the workforce mm-hmm. or so. I, those are the figures that I've seen. They, but they represent the grand majority of severe COVID cases and deaths. So those workers that are 15 to 54 years old, they easily comprise 80% of the workforce or more. Right. But only so far, as I'm looking at these figures, less than 7,000 out of 117,000 U.S. deaths and more than 2,000, 2 million confirmed cases, 20 million probably in total. Mm-hmm. So why can't those people that are 54 and younger just rejoin the workforce? Right. With right? those precautions that I said. Exactly. Well, you know, I, I admit that this is a form of ageism, you know, and indeed I, I would be a victim of it myself. Well, if there were strict rules that said you could not go to work, yes. But what I'm saying is instead of implementing, you know, the list of rules of who's allowed to do what is that we all just take personal responsibility. And if you have risk factors that this could kill you, you're probably going to wear a mask more often. You're probably not going to go to places that you might have gone to before to lower your own risk so that you don't get COVID and you don't die. So we all need to take this upon ourselves to decide how much risk we want to have. But we're used to having people decide for us. At I least, don't want not you to and I, but a, the majority of the people in this country. So, and you have to remember that placing restrictions on certain groups, mm-hmm. age or, or health groups, things like that, for public health reasons, is nothing new. I mean, if you I travel from other countries, we've already you're required had it for, to self quarantine. We've already right? had it for five months. I know. There you go. If you're a contact of COVID nineteen patients, you should self quarantine. They're already telling you to do that. The CDC often specifically singles out the elderly and those with underlying health conditions yes. for all sorts of special precautions for Absolutely. all sorts of different situations. Now, of course, I know it would be more complicated than just telling those people that are 54 and younger to get back to work. You know, I mean, what about those that are 55 to 64 years old? Most of these people are probably still working. What about... Uh, schools and universities. I mean, even if you're allowed to return to a normal quote-unquote workplace, you have to remember that those younger people are still going to have to be especially careful around elderly customers, elderly family, things like that. But at least if we can get 80% of the workforce back, Mm -hmm. then the nation probably wouldn't collapse economically, or at least the effect would be much, much less. Now, I'll admit, I don't have all the answers. At this age, I'm losing more and more brain cells every day. I admit That's it. not true. I gave it you is. blueberries just before this. Oh, uh, Your yes. brain is healthier than it was 20 minutes ago. That's right. I have Basically, I have got two brain cells left, <laughs> and the rubber band that's holding them together is be- beginning to stretch, <laughs> beginning to fray. So You know what? 
I don't believe you. You do. No, I don't believe you. Well, in any case, these questions are for <laughs> somebody that's higher than my pay grade. I don't have all the answers. And still with the second wave on the way, age-related guidelines, I think, might be something to consider. So hmm. I think that's something... Maybe for certain situations. Something to consider. Yeah, but you just can't tell everybody at that age to stay home. We'll never leave our house again. <laughs> <laughs> How about you that? You want to be able to go out, don't you? Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time that we have for this week's Survival Medicine Podcast. Thanks for listening. That's right. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.